talk to you about something that we covered last year. This is um, a bit of a Halloween-themed um, discussion, although for um, people who suffer from serious mental illness, this is no joke. This is nothing to do with the holiday for them. And I thought it would be useful um, for us to discuss what the difference is between these, some of the terminology that you hear psychiatrists throwing around a lot um, in these clinics. So we're going to be talking about um, the you know, the differences between delusions, hallucinations, and illusions today. So we were uh, able to, you know, to have this lecture yes, uh, last year, and I've added some things to update it for those who were, who were here at that time. Okay. All right, first, let's go over the objectives. So today we're going to be describing the differences between delusions, illusions, and hallucinations. We're going to discuss the nuances of delusional thoughts, and you'll hear a lot of terminology around that um, um, when we're discussing those cases, like I said, with psychiatrists. And then we're going to talk about the cultural, uh, regional, and cultural and regional differences in delusional content. And I'd love to hear um, the feedback from people in the room, but then also those um, on the network. Um, from the, you know, We've got a lot of people on from a variety of places around the country and out of the country. So I'd love to hear <clears throat> some of the things that you interact with with patients who have serious mental illness. Okay, so let's jump right in. So we're going to start with delusions. Um, so, you know, what are these? These are disturbances in thought content. The, the, the definition that we use in our DSM um, is that this is a fixed false belief that's based on incorrect inference about an external reality. And somebody will maintain a delusion, they'll, you know, firmly hold on to that despite what almost everyone else in their culture believes. Um, and even when faced with indisputable or obvious proof of evidence to the contrary, they'll hold on to this thought, okay? <clears throat> we as psychiatrists discuss the content of somebody's overall, you know, overall, overarching delusional symptoms with a patient to understand one organization of it. Is this a, you know, a somewhat simple thought? Is this something that's been constructed into their life and really rules how they live their life? And then the patient's conviction of how valid or the validity of the validity of um, like most things, delusional conviction really occurs on a continuum, so you can really see how, you know, how deeply held these beliefs are based on the individual's behavior, and we'll talk about some examples about that. Okay. Being that we're physicians, we like to classify things, so you can think about delusions in terms of bizarre or non-bizarre um, types, um, and they're classified by themes. These are just a few of the ones that we have and the ones that we use, but these are the more common delusional um, themes. So persecutory or paranoid type, grandiose, meaning, meaning that somebody thinks maybe that they're more special or better than they might be at something, um, jealous, uh, somatic or related to the body, uh, guilty, nihilistic, and erotic. So nihilistic, um, specifically, the word's a little bit different from, you know, its meaning in, in the English language, but nihilistic basically means that part of them, some part of them is dead, right, or, like, not working, okay? So I'll give you an example of that. We also talk about ideas of reference, or IOR, or ideas of influence, IOI, which is this idea that somebody can hold on to a belief that um, the behavior of others uh, in relation to them, or that events, objects, and other people have particular unusual significance. So ideas of reference is, for example, a belief that a television, radio, or internet message is particularly directed towards them. And then ideas of influence is that another person or force is controlling some aspect of that 
that person's behavior. <clears throat> Any questions about those, those definitions so far? Are you monitoring the chat now? Yes, that's anything that's all. Okay. All right. So how I mean, how does how does one interact with patients who have delusions? How would you all you know discuss these? So you know, people who have delusions have often had their beliefs dismissed or belittled by people around them, their friends, family, society. And so they're they're usually on guard for similar reactions from others, right? And that includes law officers. So when I'm speaking to somebody with a delusional you know, thought system, I attempt to ask questions about you know all of those things that I'm wondering like what type and how strongly they hold on to these, these ideas and how complex the delusional system is without really revealing that I believe them, most importantly, or that I disbelieve them, right? You don't wanna make them feel either way. So the way that I often do that is <clears throat> to ask about how the accompanying emotions that go along with it. Because I find that people are more, more apt to speak freely about that when you talk about that aspect, right? So one example might be saying something like, wow, I imagine that's really distressing for you um, to believe that people are following you um, or well, you know, wow, that, that must be really scary to think that um, all of the, the, the cars that are black in the city are following you, something like that, right? Um, so that you're not really saying, hey, I, I buy into this, but also I'm not questioning you so much that you're not going to trust me to talk with you. Any examples of times where you all have interacted with you know, people who have a delusion and, and, and this has gone well for you or gone poorly for you? Ben Melendres, APD. I, you know, we they teach us in the police department not to buy into someone's delusions or hallucinations, but to validate how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great strategy. Um, unfortunately, it, there comes a point in some instances where I don't have enough to take them against their will. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to convince them to go to the hospital. And it's really difficult when you can't just, uh, you know, uh, confront their delusions outright. Because you can say, why don't you go to the hospital? And they say, well, why would I need to? Mm -hmm. you know, like, sure because you believe in something that's not true, but that's not productive. So there's always that weird situation where you, you don't want to buy into it, but you don't want to confront them with fear sure. and trying to talk someone into going to the hospital. How has that gone well for you at times? What, what have you been able to say to get them to go to the hospital? So usually I will either make it a medical concern. You know, it's, it's very concerning medically for me that, you know, your heart starts to race and you start to perspire and you get all these feelings of anxiousness. Mm -hmm. Or I'll just say, you know, you know, the way you're making it feel isn't normal. And you don't have to live through them. You can go talk to someone to get some help with that, mm -hmm. yeah. as opposed to just directly con confronting them with their delusions. Yeah, that's terrific. And I, I oftentimes do that too with patients who are really suspicious of you know what it is that I'm wanting to do to help them. Maybe you know um, latch onto that one thing that they've complained about. And oftentimes for for me with patients who have psychosis, it's a complaint of oh I'm not sleeping well because of this. I'm like okay, well let's try and get you some help with that. Right, so that active listening part for things that they're upset about and, and using that as a hook to help them. Good. Any other times where that's not gone well? Or I've, uh, I dealt with one person who was uh, thinking, that, uh, thinking that people were following him, that people were trying to get him through his windows. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had rigged up all kinds of different things about his windows. He was trying to show me evidence of them coming in and leaving and coming in. And... Uh, it was tough because I didn't want to challenge him, but I had to tell him, okay, I don't see what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And I told him, what's very concerning for me is that you see it this way, and we have to rule out that there's nothing medical going on with mm -hmm. you. 
So there's all kinds of things that could be going on. You could have an infection, you could have a brain tumor, you could have any of those things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a doctor, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't work right away. I had to, I think I went out three times. And the third time I finally said, look, use the, you're not sleeping, mm -hmm. you're not eating, um, this is not a way to live. Why don't we try to see what we can do about getting you help medically just, just rule that out. If we can rule that out, then I can move forward with some other things. And I'll run my investigation at the same time that you're getting your medical help. That worked, but it took a while. Took a while. That's great. Yeah, and it, and, and it sounds like, too, that that person that you were interacting with really wanted your buy-in, right? Like, they wanted to show you all of the evidence that they had collected, right? And that's not uncommon, actually. No, not at all. Solutions. That's great. Dr. Hatfield, so Jeff Flowerth, APD, just out of curiosity, like with delusions, um, where Lawrence was talking about, like I've seen people like screw windows together so that way they can't get open. Mm -hmm. Is that somewhere where they're starting to become a danger where we would be able to take them to the hospital? Right. So, and that brings up a really great point, right? So, a lot of people live with delusional thought content, they live with you know, pretty sophisticated delusional beliefs through all their life, and they may never present. Um, you know, to uh, local authorities or, or, or a medical system, they might not ever, you know, interact with those people. Um, but the minute that it starts getting to a point where they're, you know, putting themselves in a dangerous position, I think those are the patients that we're going to see. And so, yes, if they're if they're blocking an exit, what would happen if there was a fire? Right? If they're doing something to really um, endanger their life, then yes, that's a that's a reason. Good question. Any other questions or times where this has gone well or not so well? All right, keep going. So I'm going to show you some case examples from my own clinical practice um, of mostly photographs and artistic work um, to highlight some of the way that these delusional um, thoughts can, can happen and can work for patients, okay? So this first one, and those for, for you in the room, I'm going to pass around the hard copy so you can really take a, a good peek. Um, and if this looks confusing to anybody on the network, it's because it really is. None of this makes any sense. So this is a, a gentleman, this was about 60, 65 year old black male that I worked with in Atlanta when I was in a resident. And um, he had schizophrenia, uh, had suffered from schizophrenia for many years. He was actually in our military. I don't remember which branch he served in. Um, but was <clears throat> shortly after an enlisting, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he lived locally in Atlanta, and he had a very complex delusional uh, belief system about the interaction of um, you know, geographic locations, how the world worked in terms of governmental agencies, mathematical formulas. You can see some DNA structures there at the top. Um, and so a lot of this, like if you look closely, you can start to see some words that make sense. Um, um, and some chemical formulas that you might recognize, but other than that, it's just his belief system of how the world is, is interacting with itself. And I felt really bad because as a, as a resident, I was trying to understand and trying to, to really you know, um, delve into his delusional system, and he got frustrated that he couldn't explain it to me, so he stayed up all night drawing this. This is one of six pages that he drew, and um, multiple you know, pages had like hand-drawn bricks to show me, so I, I don't know what it was supposed to show me, but so he presented it to me the next day, and I still didn't understand. Um, but he, he held on to this belief that flora and fauna um, you know, had some special magical powers, and he had a collection of you know, those old-timey silver bullet 
uh, sort of trailers. He had one for flora and one for fauna. And so, you know, is that odd? Absolutely. Is that dangerous? Not necessarily, unless he's taking dogs from the neighborhood and doing weird things, right? So, like, he was going to live with that delusional thought system for the rest of his life, and, and this was a little insight into it. Sergeant Pulling just stated that that looks like his notes. <laughs> yeah, some of the words on there are completely, you know, they're, they're, they're made up words um, for him, so neologisms. Um, neologisms, yeah, new words, yeah, so here's another one, um, this was also from a patient that I worked with in Atlanta, um, a young female with schizoaffective disorder, she had been uh, sexually abused as a child and developed this belief system, um, you know, this, this way of escapism almost, um, that she was being controlled, or so that ideas of, of influence for her was happening. Um, and I think her way, psychologically, of dealing with that abuse was to make up this system of you know, where she went when she was being abused. And so she had believed she had been abducted by aliens, and she would frequently draw um, you know, this scene or scenes like it. And interestingly enough, she oftentimes would draw herself as the alien. Okay, now this one is done by a man um, frequently that we see at UNM, um, who has one of the most severe forms of schizophrenia that I've ever seen. I know that you all have interacted with him as well. Um, particularly around Halloween, when um, like stores in the mall start putting up their you know, costume displays, and for whatever reason, the Joker seems to always be part of that, he starts to believe that he is the Joker. And he came from a very um, intensely religious background. And so his, <clears throat> for him, it becomes this um, underlying themes of grandiosity, that he's this famous character. He's, he might be a famous, famous celebrity. He might be the Joker himself. With these underlying themes of you know, hyper-religious um, or strict moral codes guiding what he does. And so, you know, depending, and this man, he's always not doing well. Like, he's, he's not living a great life. He goes around town and picks up cigarette butts and, or anything that looks like a cigarette butt and smokes it. Um, so he puts himself in danger a lot. But when he comes in to, you know, to PES, or when I would see him in PES, and he was saying he was the Joker and he thought he needed to kill people, that's when he needed to be admitted. So he believed at some level some pretty bizarre stuff about outer space and um, you know, religion, but when he started doing this or drawing this, then he knew he was getting Okay. I don't have this one to pass around because this came from a book um, of a patient that I worked with in residency. He wrote a lot of poetry, and this was his book cover. Um, and so um, this is an example of that nihilism that we were talking about once that you asked that question about. So he really had this sense that there was an unrealness to his life, that, that you know, that that as a child he died. Um, he also suffered from schizophrenia and pretty bad obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and so every time he saw a black crow, um, that was a reminder of that for him. Um, and it became a bit of a trigger, but then also he would use that in his art. Um, and he's actually I mean, a fantastic artist. His poetry is interesting, but um, his, his art is, is pretty amazing. So this is an example of that, <clears throat> nihilism. And then this one, it's from a patient here in town um, um, who's had actually a lot of interaction with you all. Uh, she's a student at UNM. Um, and this was something she drew actually within 
we gave her a, like kind of like a patient information handbook and she drew on every single page uh, something similar to this. Um, so as you can see, any Eminem fans in the room or online, we've got a couple of Eminem lyrics written up there on the far left corner. So this is really just, she, she's got pretty bad bipolar disorder, very poor insight into um, how manic and psychotic she can become. Um, but this is basically just a collection of song, rap lyrics. There's some lullabies in there. There's some fixation on numbers and the meaning of numbers. You can particularly see the, the 3 a.m. component. Um, but then there's also, by this pentagram, this blue star-looking thing, there's a bunch of numbers there, too. So she would fixate on the meaning behind certain numbers. Um, and then she had a lot of paranoid, grandiose delusions, too, about who she was, who she interacted with in the government and the police. Um, pharmaceutical companies, the internet, it got pretty expansive for her. And then unfortunately that got targeted towards UNM main campus leadership and became part of why she was brought in for, for, you know, for, to see us. And you can imagine a, you know, a, a young undergrad um, experiencing this sort of thought content, how, how little that it could concentrate on you know, the work that they're supposed to be studying, because this is what's overwhelming her thought process. Okay, so we're going to jump into a different case, um, something called, well, I'll tell you what it's called in a minute. Okay, so this is uh, the next series of photos is to show you just how um, abnormal some of these delusions can get and how sometimes patients won't present to a psychiatrist or to the police department. They'll present to another subspecialty. So this was a 53-year-old Caucasian female who presented to a private dermatology clinic. She was referred by her primary care doctor for a chief complaint of bugs in her skin. And this is what she brought with her. She brought like a bag full of debris. And this is lined paper that it was just dumped on. Um, so this is her proof um, of parasites, of her parasitic infection. And so that was looked at under the microscope and it showed mostly you know, debris, um, organic debris, but no, no parasites, no feces, no eggs. Nothing suggests that she had been infested by anything. She'd been self-treating um, with bleach, boric acid, and a number of other things, to, you know, caustic agents to the skin, including mouthwash. Um, and she'd, she'd gone to a number of subspecialists looking for an answer to why it was that you know, she had this infection. Um, so during the exam, she actually became pretty tearful and, and admitted to feeling depressed and not being able to sleep and very poor self-image. Okay, so you're looking at the left is the abdomen, and then um, on the right is both the right, right buttock and the left buttock, okay? So this physical exam, um, she was an obese white female. Her abdomen and buttock showed numerous crusted papules, but there wasn't any primary lesion. Um, and every, every area that was affected were only areas that could be reached, right? So like the, the, the middle of the back was spared. Um, the upper back was also spared. Um, and so this, you know, this, this diagnosis was made, which was delusions of parasitosis. Um, because she had said she, didn't, she wasn't sleeping well, um, she was actually amenable to starting an antipsychotic target. It really sold at helping her to sleep better um, and targeting that. Um, and, and unlike most of these cases, she actually took this medication. And this is what she looked like four months later after she had taken um, a, a medication called Risperidone. 
So she was unlike, again, these, most of these patients who have delusions of parasitosis um, go doctor shopping. They'll go from specialist to specialist. They very rarely present to a psychiatrist. Um, and they, they really want to be told, yes, you have an infection and you know, here's your course of antibiotics, right? Um, but she, for, you know, for a number of reasons, she was very compliant and she returned every six months for follow-up. So we'll, we'll loop about, you know, we'll, we'll loop around to that again, delusions of parasitosis um, a little bit later. But I wanted to talk about some regional and culturally related delusions. So I polled a bunch of psychiatrists online last year about, you know, where they were practicing and some of the delusional systems that came up in those areas. And so, as you can imagine, psychiatrists practicing in Los Angeles, film industry that people you know presented with grandiosity around that that they believed they were a film mogul or that they were a director and had a lot to do with fame um, in Minneapolis if anybody knows that area well so Pillsbury is located there um, and so a couple of people a couple of psychiatrists talked about um, patients presenting with delusional thoughts paranoid thoughts towards the company towards Pillsbury like selling tainted flour that was infected with HIV that's where Prince lives, so people would present saying I'm related to Prince or I'm Prince's wife, that sort of thing. In Memphis, um, Elvis delusions, people related to him. For me, in my training, it was a lot to do with famous producers or rappers that lived in the area. So a lot of times, Little Wayne. I don't know if you guys know the story with cough syrup and rappers. Just out, just <laughs> so, do you know the story about cough syrup? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, apparently this is a, a thing in the rap world where people use codeine syrup, and that's where the thought that, that purple drink comes from. It's actually not like like a great, great drink. drink. It's codeine. They call it yeah. dropping DM. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that would come I up would for people. Like Robotussin. Robofrying? Yeah. I mean, I've heard, I mean, I've heard it before in the past. Do you have something else? He just wants a little lean. Oh, okay. Let's go back to that. Okay. And then Tyler, Tyler Perry, too, um, was pretty you know, wrapped up for a lot of delusional thought content in Atlanta. And then, of course, with the military experience, I've seen more patients who, you know, um, been deployed before and they, they really think that there was a chip implanted in their brain or somewhere else in their body there's experimentation done to them that they were given large amounts of LSD. Um, so those are some some differences that can happen regionally and culturally. Um, can you all think of any in New Mexico or where you're you know where you're um, logging in from? Chupacabra is real. Yeah. <laughs> First to prove it's wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Don't buy into his delusion. Just <laughs> verify how the chupacabra makes him feel. <laughs> La Llorona. La Llorona. There's a movie on her now. Mm -hmm. La Llorona. La Llorona. Llorona. Say it again. La Llorona. I can't have it. <laughs> my, my, my. Say it. La what? La Llorona. There is a video, huh? The Crier. Chris, in Texas, what, what local delusions or folklore do you guys have? That it's the best state. The Cowboys are gonna win. I think I lost Chris actually. Skinwalkers. Skinwalkers. Does anybody want to explain that? 
it's a Native American belief, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure it would qualify as a delusion if someone who's Native American and it was part of their culture believed in it. Would that be the same thing with like chupacabra? I mean, it's just a... It's definitely more like folklore then, right? Mm -hmm. But if, if somebody were to develop, take that folklore and turn it into a delusion, it would get them, somehow it would disrupt their life in some way, right? That we can all sit here and think, tell ghost stories and maybe be a little bit creeped out, but then go about our day in a regular way. A delusion would, would prevent that. Jeff Blubberth, APD. So <clears throat> this is just a kind of off-the-wall question. Uh, Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. There's like all of a sudden there's Bigfoot hunters, there's people like leaving their job to go do this Bigfoot stuff. It, would that be considered delusion or is it not a, because it's not affecting them, they're making money off of it. They're still able to live their life. Right. So I would argue, like, what's their motivation behind it, right? So is it buying into this idea that they're going to get viewers, that they're going to get people to follow them on social media, and then they can somehow make, make some sales off of that versus them really believing that there's something out there? So we, we all have beliefs that we're not going to agree on, right? Right. But I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that those are delusions until it gets somebody, you know, in, into some trouble in terms of their data. Like, are they selling all of their possessions in order to go do this? Is this like some spiritual decision they've decided? To, it, it really, it, it, it can depend person to person. Got it. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up, though. Um, I do want to hear if anybody else has some examples that they'd want to talk about. But this, there's this idea of delusions in the internet, right? That the internet's really permit, permitted this expansion of ideas and ease of connectivity with each other, so that we can we can share our experience. People who are you know, support those they're experiencing or doing the same thing, and there becomes this possible blurring of obsession versus delusion. Right? And how much you buy into that, how much you buy into social media or being on the internet. Um, and then what you do on the internet can really, um, I think, determine some of this too. So um, I see a lot of patients who they have a they have a strong sense that the internet is part of their delusional system. So like that, you know, they've seen something happen on a GoFundMe, and so they're going to be the new, the new GoFundMe mogul, or whatever. they're going to make it, they're going to be a billionaire or a famous civil rights leader, um, and they're living all of this out through social media. And where I think that this is like one of the areas where this is. Um, ties into what we were just talking about with delusions of parasitosis that can be pretty frightening is something called Morgellons. So, so Morgellons is the term that patients who believe they are infested um, with some sort of fiber um, have used rather than delusions of parasitosis. So patients are really offended by the idea that this is a delusional you know, thought system um, and there's a lot of support for this online. So much so that there was a mailing campaign in, a mailing campaign in um, 2006 where people who believed they had Morgellons um, submitted letter after letter to Congress um, to the point where Congress had the CDC come up with a task force to, you know, to investigate this, whether Morgellons was something that was actually an infestation or was a delusional system. So um, in August of that year, they they came up with this task force team and they had a pathologist, they had a couple infectious disease doctors, a psychiatrist, um, you know, um, some other specialists, a toxicologist, an ethicist, um, and then somebody in, that was um, specialized in parasitic disease. And so for five years they had this, you know, they had this study and they worked with um, Kaiser Permanente in, in Northern California. And then they actually had, um, 
the American Academy of Dermatology and the U.S. Armed Forces Institute of Pathology doing the, the data too. Um, and basically, they released their findings in 2012, in January of that year, and their conclusions were that 59% of 59% uh, of the subjects that were enrolled showed some sort of cognitive deficit. 63% had evidence of a clinically significant symptom. 50% had drugs in their system. Um, at, you know, during the study, and 78% were, were reporting exposure to solvents or possible skin irritants. In all of the biopsies they took from patients, they didn't find any parasites, they didn't find anything to indicate that somebody was infested with something, and most materials that were, you know, that were collected from participants were made of cellulose, likely from cotton origin. So this is one of those, you know, like for me, if, if you've ever, for the docs in the room who've interacted with patients with a, you know, delusion of parasitosis, it's very, very frustrating. It's a difficult disease to treat because they just don't believe it's delusion. And they won't, they, they typically don't take an antipsychotic and they'll over and over bring in evidence of their infestation. It can be a pretty frustrating thing. Dr. Rosenbaum actually said I had this and build my insurance company. How do you guys address this? We adjust after case about this recently. Did you? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it depends. Like, you know, oftentimes these patients don't even show up to a psychiatrist because they're offended by the idea that this is a thought disorder, right? Um, so, I, I'd say for me, my interaction with these patients has either been in the ER setting or in, in other rotations as a resident. Um, but it's you know trying to understand how the symptoms affect their life and proposing other things, and it's it's oftentimes difficult. What I think was remarkable about that case that we discussed, the dermatology patient, um, was that using that hook of insomnia, like this is causing so much distress for you that you're not sleeping, then then selling the medication on, on that, and, she, and then she saw that she was doing better, and and she didn't like the way that her abdomen looked, that her you know her body looked, and so when she saw that progress made. That was a bit of a buy-in, but that's pretty rare. So you use body shaming. That's not what I said. <laughs> Just make sure we go out and make fun of people to convince them of medication. That's great. That's not what I said. Man no. has the nihilism in his heart. Yeah. It's dead and then functioning. I think this one is difficult. Have you guys, anyone else on the network, had a case similar to this? I'm just curious on what you guys in law enforcement have done to convince someone to get into treatment. The real talkative today. <laughs> well, so, a hard one. so this is a Facebook support group at the top middle left, and then the bottom right is essentially it was a GoFundMe campaign to make this documentary called Skin Deep. Um, and I don't, or sorry, Kickstarter, not GoFundMe. Um, and I don't actually know if they got enough money to make it or not, but um, it would have been interesting to see regardless. So going back to that, you know, the regional concepts of delusions, can anybody think about others that you've seen in interaction with patients, specifically here in Albuquerque? More gallons? No, of any delusion that's related to our culture or region. Ben Melendres, this might just be me seeing it and not actually what's happening, but I've seen a lot of uh, gang stalking, mm -hmm. like they're being stalked by local street gangs, and mm -hmm. I've seen that a lot. Mm -hmm. Else? I wonder if we had a unit that uh, dealt with mental health every day. Like as the calls came out. Yeah. 
um, that responded to them immediately, like a co-responder mobile crisis team or something. <laughs> they would probably see it a lot, but... Because <laughs> everyone's like, you might sure a little uh, mobile crisis team. We just had one yesterday. I'm not sure if this is the exact arena, but um, she quit feeding her baby because the water was poisoned. Um, she just believed that it was poisoning the family. Um, not quite a cultural thing, but um, that was her belief. She had to get treatment for that. Bridget McCoy, UNM Psychiatry. Do you guys get a lot of uh, beliefs about the Illuminati here? Not too much. So, Matt believes one of our coworkers is part of the <laughs> That's true. And I'll bring up another reason why I believe that. So randomly I'm using Doc's computer, and that person's name is associated with this computer. Really? Yeah. Where? It says Niels Rosenbaum and sure? Illuminati. Yeah. It's not like IT. He probably is in charge of everything. How's your sleep, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us why you asked that question, Dr. Lupe. Well, I, I moved here recently from New York, and in New York, the Illuminati was everywhere all the time. I, like For real? Every, yes. For real. <laughs> for real. I mean, maybe for real. It's hard to know, right? But it was, I mean, probably, well, I don't want to throw out percentages, but a lot of people who came into the emergency department with uh, some sort of delusional belief system, the Illuminati was involved in it. So, Matt, do you have a question? doctors so like the Illuminati has become real popular lately I would say in like memes and kind of like young culture so do you think there's an increase in the delusions because it's a pop culture right now I definitely I think you can see an interplay and that's why I pointed this out that like you know with social media you know with a variety of internet uh, you know campaigns that you see something that might never have taken off you know, culturally it might have been one area but it's now kind of everywhere um i'm thinking about some like non-related specific things um uh, non-related to that but like for instance that movie what was that that show that came out on netflix the 13 oh, reasons one. why oh, yes yeah and it, like caused a number yes. of you know suicides mm -hmm. so i mean i think that the, it makes it more possible it's difficult to look at you when you say really snarky things like <laughs> 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 Beck garcia said that he or she hears a lot of witches in santeria in terms of this is Neil's Rosemont, in terms of illuminati and secret people controlling everything what about anti-semitism is that considered delusion Sorry, it's real. No, anti-Semitism is real, but that's one of the core beliefs of anti-Semites is that we're secretly that Jews are secretly controlling things. Oh, and like that you guys are like the yes. Huh. I just think that's dominant racism, right? <laughs> but I do think that I like it's not you're not gonna. It, you're going to see a certain subset of people who take that one step further and it becomes part of their delusional system and they have a target against that, right? But, I mean, yeah. I don't know the answer. Just ask you. For example, psychiatry, I was actually just at a conference where there was a pretty large workshop uh, talking about delusions mm -hmm. and like a continuum between delusions, overvalued beliefs, and obsessions. And so like in that setting, they didn't have the answers, but are actually trying to get some data about how 
psychiatrists respond to different scenarios and how they kind of classify things. Um, and so in that kind of mindset, I think they would think about those as overvalued beliefs that then, like they were specifically talking about one of the people there had interviewed uh, Deanne Laney, who had killed two of her children um, in, to sacrifice them, believing that they were going to come back, uh, that God was bringing them back. Um, and so the idea of that a lot of people in, the, in her religion had similar beliefs, but then her belief system. Mm -hmm. So those are overvalued beliefs, but then her belief system went a little haywire and came, yeah, became a delusion mm -hmm. with it. That's interesting. Yeah. So yeah. it's yeah, an interesting discussion and hard to kind of like sort yeah. all those things out. Then Brian Carter for your answer, please, says globalist conspiracy theories. Right, like again, occurring on that, that like, is that an obsession, right? Is that an obsession for somebody and occurring on that spectrum? It's just hard to say from case to case. I, I guess what I was wondering about the what's popular, what's a family and the, the dad transition to a woman? Oh, like Kardashians. Kardashians. So when the Kardashians are at the peak, we had multiple cases where people were like, oh, Kim Kardashian, I'm supposed to be watching her, she's not on TV, and they would call police nonstop. They believe like, they were her watcher or something. Oh, that good card. Yeah. But I know it's only because, well, I'm sure they were already ill, but it was like that was the popular thing at the time. Right. Well, and I think probably you, you all know a little bit more about this than I would, but like the stalking behavior really comes down to people believing that either there's some grandiose relationship with the person they're stalking, or that it, it's typically not related to, let me terrorize this person. It's the belief that they're helping them or you know, watching them, like you said. I guess we also get stuff about Cynthia Labs and stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot, to be honest with you. I guess that's true. I would think that that's like almost overrepresented sometimes, but what you would think. Between that and the military here, I think those two. What are about aliens? Mexico's all in Roswell. But I mean, like, it's New Mexico's kind of known for aliens. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> there was a documentary called The X-Files that pretty much yeah. proved that they really do exist. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. So we've covered, we've covered delusions. Let's talk about hallucinations. So this is a false sensory perception that occurs in the absence of any relevant external stimulation of the sensory modality that's involved, okay? So just like, um, you know, we have all, all, all five senses, these get classified in that way. So the two most common um, from a psychiatric perspective are auditory, which is the false perception of sound, voices, or music. So this is the most common. And then visual, uh, false perception of sight. Uh, tactile, which is the false perception of physical experience that's localized within the body. Olfactory, the, fa the false perception of smell and odors, and then gustatory, the false perception of taste. Um, these last three are, are very indicative of a medical etiology when they're occurring. So tactile hallucinations can occur in alcohol withdrawal in the later stages, more dangerous stages of alcohol withdrawal, where somebody's been beginning to experience something called delirium tremens or DTs. Okay, and then the, la the second two, the last two, the olfactory and gustatory. Um, especially happen with, with when there are something's going wrong with the temporal lobe, so a seizure, a lesion, Parkinson's, um, and in particular, the taste hallucinations can occur before or after a seizure. People describe like a molten sugar, metallic, or salty taste oftentimes when they're having that experience. 
I have a question on this then. Um, is it possible that they go back and forth between the delusion and hallucination? And I bring up a case where we used to work with this one individual that um, he, would, he would say Damien Dash raped me. Uh, back in the day, that was like a MTV uh, radio disc jockey or whatever. Mm -hmm. He'd say he raped him or Snoop Dogg raped me. But he would spit the entire time you were there because he felt like he had that taste in his mm -hmm. mouth. Yeah. And he was spitting the whole time. So he was, it was almost like he was having the, yes, that perception that it was, that he could taste something, but he was having the delusion at the same time. Sure. Yeah. And so in that case, they're tightly related. And probably the memory, and my, 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 I wonder about sexual abuse in that person, or having been, you know, raped in the past, and that memory, evoking that memory, was bringing up, uh, you know, was, was traumatic for him, and was there was some reliving of that moment, which okay. was causing some of that. Yeah, we thought he had PTSD. I guess he had mm -hmm. seen his brother murder a female in their home, <laughs> roll her up in a rug and throw her in a mesa. So there was a lot of... He had all kinds of issues with that, but mm -hmm. that's just the, the prevalent thing. He would call and leave a message for us, you know, mm -hmm. Damien Dash raped me. We knew we'd have to go up then because something was going on. Sure. Yeah. Niels Rosenbaum. So, yeah, I think one of the things that makes these terms confusing, hallucinations and delusions, is that they do so often coexist and, and sort of reinforce each other. Mm -hmm. so the delusion is the FBI is listening in on all my phone calls, and the hallucination is I can hear clicking or... I can feel the waves going through my body, kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So they often they often go together. Right. So it always goes back to that the, the sensory perception. So if they if one of their five senses is being impaired with, that's that's what makes it a hallucination. Okay. So going over the two most common you know, within psychiatry, let's talk about auditory hallucination. So psychiatrists are wanting to know about the volume and clarity of hallucination. So you know. On a scale of zero to ten, how loud is the, the the voice, and is it a whisper? Is it something that's speaking, you know, speaking very clearly that you can understand what they're saying, or is it something that's mumbling? Is it continuously going on, or is it intermittent and happening at certain times of day? Is it originating inside the voice, inside the head, or outside the head, the head? The number of voices, whether the voices talk among themselves, the gender. If there's commands involved, like kill yourself or go kill that person, and if there's a familiarity to the voice, if it's, oh, it's my mom's voice, or oh, I don't know who that is, and then whether they have insight into it. So a lot of people who live with schizophrenia or some other form of primary psychosis for their life, they recognize these experiences. They begin to understand them. They begin to recognize it, maybe even naming the person talking to them. Um, so they realize that it's part of their illness spectrum, right, and they can recognize, oh, my voices are getting worse. I better go hospital, that sort of thing. So we talk about auditory hallucinations in terms of primary psychosis, so somebody who has something like schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, delusional disorder, versus substance-induced psychosis. That's what that SIP stands for. And so we ask all of these questions, so there are pretty clear differences between the two. Um, and it can be helpful for us to understand um, or get some more information from a patient who's experiencing this symptom. So with primary psychosis, auditory hallucinations are typically of voices of both sexes. Uh, they're spoken in the person's native language. They're clear and coherent. Some can be command in type. Um, the commands typically match the patient's own speech pattern, and the commands are not complex. You know, take a shower, go there, do this, that sort of thing. Versus substance-induced um, psychotic symptoms of, of 
auditory hallucination origin can be noises, music, unintelligible voices. It's very uncommon for them to act on command um, hallucinations. They tend to describe the voices occurring outside of the head. They address the individuals indirectly or in third person. And they might not have reality testing intact or the insight into you know, this experience themselves. And so specifically with alcohol use, um, voices can become pretty common for a, a chronic alcoholic and can comment on that person's life in a negative way or maybe even spiritual spiritually. And a lot of people don't ex ex you know, ex accept those voices as real. So those are helpful for us as psychiatrists to delineate between the two. Any questions about auditory hallucinations? Okay, let's go on to visual hallucinations. So I, I do have one, I'm so sorry. It's okay. I, I, I read an article where they had done some research on that it could, sometimes it could be self-talk, mm -hmm. that they actually like hooked up stuff to the vocal cords to see if what they were hearing was matching what they might be saying. Or might be thinking. Right, something like that. A stream of consciousness sort is of that, thing. Is there anything... Research-wise, I don't, I don't know, but it would be really interesting. I know there was a group. I'm trying to remember. It was at Harvard or Princeton that was looking into how to quanti how to, um, you know, quantify stream of consciousness. That there's only so many things that we say to each other throughout the day, but we think a whole lot more. We might not even be, you know, cognitively aware of the fact of what, you know, what our stream of consciousness is. And they were really interested. There's a group of psychologists who are really interested in that, and that would be neat to see, with, you know, with people who suffer from mental illness too. Okay, so with visual hallucinations, similarly, we want to know, you know, kind of like the types, if people are, if they're seeing people in full-sized or small, um, if they're seeing, you know, things in color or black and white, if they occur when falling asleep or awakening, and then how fast they develop. Okay, so we try to get some quantified information on that, too. Because there are differences between, again, primary psychosis and substance-induced psychosis. So, so visual hallucinations are typically experienced in full-sized, in color, where opening and closing the eyes does not matter in terms of hallucination, and then they can appear suddenly. Whereas with substance-induced psychosis, often described as shadows, flashing lights, moving objects with very vivid colors or shapes, um, and then, you know, either little, smaller or larger than they should be, so like little green men sort of thing. And so I mentioned, you know, the occurrence of when hallucinations are, uh, you know, happening. Does that happen when you're falling asleep or waking up? Because these are non-pathologic. Um, and I would uh, venture to say that most people in this room and online have experienced these at some point and they're completely normal. Okay, so hypnagogic occur when falling asleep, whereas hypnopompic occur when awakening from sleep. And they can be described as these, you know, as sites. Like again, they can be characterized according to the sensory experience you're having, but with sites, they're called phosphines, which is this phenomena that's characterized by you know, seeing light without actually light hit, you know, hitting the retina, hitting the eye, and so that's that seeing stars phenomena that we all have experienced at some point, um, and hopefully not when you've been punched. Um, and, you know, I think these are pretty cool, but people describe them as, like, random speckles, lines, geometric patterns. They can be moving or still, and this differs from dreams, in the sense that the hypnagogic imagery is typically, um, you know, very static. It's lacking in narrative con content, whereas a dream um, s tends to have a narrative component to it, right? Um, with auditory, people can you know, experience a variety of things, so like faint impressions all the way to loud noises, like knocking, crashing, 
bangs, having your name called, crumpling bags, doorbells ringing, et cetera, things like that. Okay. Um, and so for us as psychiatrists, trying to find out when that happens for, for somebody is really important, especially with this. In, in clinics gone by, we've talked about exploding head syndrome, um, which is a type of insomnia, and this, is, this can happen a lot for those patients where they hear a really startling loud noise, and that's part of their sleep disorder. Um, and then something you know around proprioception, and this is why I venture to say everybody's experienced one of these is um, as we're moving from you know, the awake state, the conscious state, to an uh, you know unconscious sleeping state of the brain, it's not atypical for somebody to experience that falling sensation and have the associated hypnic jerk that comes with this, so it's involuntary muscle movement. Um, and so you know that's called sleep starts or. Um, um, like I said, hypnic jerks, and um, that can be people can experience that um, with autonomic changes too. So quickening heart, maybe they're breathing more quickly, they get, they get sweaty or have shocks, and that tends to happen more often in people who are having very irregular sleep. Um, so again, maybe those who have sleep wake cycle shifts that they're, they're working at night um, for a couple days and then move back to a regular sleep cycle. Okay. Okay, so that covers hallucinations. We're finally going to get into illusions. And you know, we don't really see a whole lot of this in psychi psychiatry. This is, um, these are you know, non-pathologic in nature. And so you know, from a psychologic perspective, so human psychology, we all see nuances to things and um, can, can give us some interesting ideas about how the brain works. So these are perceptual misinterpretations of real external stimuli. And the example that I like to give um, to people when I'm explaining this is, you know, you're in a dark room at night, you see um, like a tree outside and all of a sudden it morphs into something more than a tree, right? So there's this real external stimuli, the tree, but there's a perceptual misinterpretation of what that is, okay? And so um, these again are classified into, you know, a variety of um, groups, but more often than not, they're, they're optical. So our brains create a visual interpretation of an object in front of us in the environment, and then it forms the formation of that, of, of that object, right? And if there's any gap, then our brain tries to fill that in. And so the, you, you've seen a lot of these, I'm sure. Um, the Bezold effect is where color seems different due to adjacent colors. Best example I have about this is the dress. Do you guys see this when it came out? Yeah. So anybody want to tell me which colors they see? White and gold. White and gold. Do you see white and gold? How do you not see it? I, uh, I see white and gold. Blue and black. That's blue and black. So this what was is, the next one? This is the black one. But I've stared at it before. I oh, that's the next one. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, we'll include that in next year's lecture. But this is the dress. <laughs> this, this, this became a viral internet meme in 2015 because the viewers were just disagreeing, just like we did in the room just now, about whether the, the colors of the item were blue, um, blue and black, or white and gold. And it really this this highlights this difference, this phenomena of human color perception. Okay, so when this came out, um, within a week of um, being posted to Tumblr. Um, because a family that were that was just they disagreed with the color. There were 10 million tweets about it using the hashtags the dress or white and gold or blue and black. Um, and so the actual color of the dress was eventually confirmed to be. You guys know blue. Yeah, black. And was blue. it really? Yeah, I guess. But it's the, the image really prompted this discussion, right? Because it's the color surround that surrounds it that makes our perception of it different. 
So um, does that mean the people who see it blue and black are more No, it reality? means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> 10 million people? Imagine that many people voted. One week? One week. One week, yeah. So, so it's, it's uh, again, to explain this, or try, to try and explain this, it's the way our brain processes um, a, a variety of cues with, with daylight sky, um, you know, so like the input of the, the light behind it, right? So you're either discounting, um, if you're looking, you're discounting the blue side, in which case you see white and gold, or you're, dis you're discounting the gold side, in which you see blue and black. So it's really not like one brain is better than the other, it's just the differences in how our brains work. That we're, our visual system is actually supposed to throw away information that's not helpful and extract what's helpful. And this is just a difference in how we see things. Um, so the dress can really be interpreted if you're, you know, if you're looking at a yellow tinted illumination, it's black and blue. And if you're looking at it from blue tinted illumination, it's white and gold. Right? So this is somebody's attempt to show this to people. But, you know. Neuroscientist freaked out with this and had a really fun time. So this is just another example of what you see. What do you guys think? Duck, duck rabbit. Oh, it's oh, also a rabbit. It's also a rabbit. Which one did you see first, Omar? I don't know because I know those pictures. So it like, <laughs> threw me off. I'm like, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> well, I have a question. So here in New Mexico, there's a place called White Sands. And we went there recently. Mm -hmm. And getting out there, it was like screwed with my brain. Because I thought it would be like snow. It looks like you're in snow. So I feel like I'm driving in snow, but it's like you step out and I expect it to kind of feel like snow and it's hot. Mm -hmm. Is that an illusion? Is you're misplacing like your previous memories? Um, no, not necessarily. So that was your brain's attempt at like taking previous experiences, right? Like this white thing right. looks like snow, so it should feel cold like snow, but yet it doesn't, right? So that that's just, I would say like, like a, a memory misinterpretation rather than an illusion. Right. I was with the nails and I was like, hey, where are your pants? You believe I'm not wearing pants. He was trying to tell me it was all in my head and now what you're telling me is that did not come out. Out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know it's the same thing like um have you ever accidentally poured yourself milk when you thought you were gonna drink water? Have you ever yes. done that in the middle of the night? Anybody? No? <laughs> well it's not a pleasant experience, right? Like typically I don't oh, drink man. milk, but I, like if you know what you're about to drink is the thing that you're gonna drink, then but when when that when that mishap happens, when there's like mismatch between what's expected and, and what the delivery is, then you know, that can be surprising, jolting for people. Okay, so that was illusion. So finally, to make this Halloween-y, I, I think it's really interesting to think about the psychology of Halloween, where we become these people, we morph into you know something else. We There's the idea of putting on a costume and becoming somebody else and entering a crowd and having anonymity and de-individualization with that. Um, and so we talked about this study last year, but this psychologist in 1976 um, took this as an, Halloween as an opportunity to research how three factors influenced people's willingness to steal extra candy. And so what this, what this psychologist did was he had, an, uh, or she had an identified and then an anonymous condition, meaning that um, she took a group of kids and got their names and where they lived. Everything about them she found out before exposing them to candy versus not asking any of those questions with some kids. And then having group size, you know, a, a child show up alone versus in a group. 
Um, and then also responsibility. We won't talk about that in the results, but assigning responsibility to a child, like making sure everybody took one piece of candy versus not doing that. And the results really were that, as you can see with this graph, that being in a group and being anonymous both greatly increased the likelihood that kids stole extra candy or money in this, in this the study included money. So children who were alone and identified, meaning that you know, their name was taken, their address was taken, they stole candy 7.5% of the time, whereas children who were anonymous or in a group stole 57.7. I know, so it's still a lot, right? Um, so it always made me laugh when I, and I vowed never as an adult to leave out the bucket and say, please take one. Um, and this really supports that. Please sign your name. Please sign your name. There's a camera. So these kids went to get candy and then they got to, had to fill out a questionnaire. <laughs> That's a bummer. They were honest. Yep. So happy Halloween. Any questions, I will take those now.